pandemic is a pretty complex problem. Ultimately, a vaccine is a large part of the solution. And still a lot of other things have to be done as well, especially in the next month or so while we're waiting for that vaccine to show up. One of the nice things to come out of the modeling group's data is that a 15% reduction in their beta value, or if you will, a 15% reduction in this sort of transmission factor was enough to turn things around. It's not like we have to do everything. We have to do more than we're doing. And if you could get it down by 15%, it not only stopped going up, but it actually started turning in the right direction. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford. And today's COVID-19 roundtable comes amidst another two weeks of big and fast developments. Generally speaking, we can lump most of what's happened into two buckets. The good news about vaccines in particular, and the not so good news about big COVID-19 case increases nationwide, including here in Arizona. This episode is being recorded just three days prior to a very unusual Thanksgiving holiday. No Macy's Parade, Thanksgiving football with few people actually in stadiums, and strong recommendations from public health officials about large gatherings for extended periods of time indoors. Here's one way to think about your Thanksgiving. We can now see the light at the end of this COVID-19 tunnel, but we are not there yet. In the near term especially, health and well-being is shaped by three factors that determine exposure to potential viral load. People, space, and time. More people equals more risk. Less space equals more risk and longer time together equals more risk. There's a big difference between a well-spaced walk in the park and a small indoor bar that's filled with people. Bars and restaurants have been shown to be more risky for COVID-19 by a significant factor. The CDC is urging us to limit travel and to limit the number of people at family gatherings. Do your best, Arizona. Wash up, mask up, and maintain physical distancing to help manage the risks of people, space, and time. All right, let's get to it. It's time to talk about what's happening in terms of the good news about vaccines, but also what's happening with the not-so-good news related to Arizona's COVID-19 case growth, hospital capacity decreases, and more, as of November 23rd, 2020. We are back today with another COVID-19 roundtable. We have three incredible guests for you. First, from the Arizona Public Health Association, Mr. Will Humble. Will, how are you? Hi, nice to be here again. Also joining us today from Arizona State University, Mr. Joshua LaBear. Josh, how are you? I am doing well. Thanks for having me. And Dr. Amish Shah. Dr. Shah, how are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Well, Dr. Shah, you have an unusual distinction for these times. You actually participated in a vaccine trial. Tell us about how that went, uh, what you've experienced, and what your thoughts are. I saw a number in the Arizona Republic to call to learn more about a vaccine trial, and I was interested. Being a physician and feeling very comfortable looking at the science behind this stuff, I felt that it could be something that I could do if the circumstances were right. So I was brought in for an initial appointment. 
they had at that time the Pfizer trial and the Moderna trial available. I chose the Pfizer trial to enroll in. And on your first visit, they take some blood, they do a nasal swab, and then they read you through all of the paperwork and the inclusion criteria, the exclusion criteria, what it means to volunteer in this. And I, after reviewing all that and, and understanding what they were doing and, and why, I chose to participate. I, again, say that it's service to humanity. If volunteers don't step forward in a large way, and in this case, a phase three trial, we're talking about 40,000 people. If people don't step forward, and I will also add people of all different kinds of demographics don't step forward, we don't really understand whether the vaccine works or not. So given my background and given my comfort level, and given also the fact that there's risk benefit calculation, I mean, there's some risk that I'm going to pick up COVID. Every day I walk into the ER, I am seeing COVID patients almost every single day. And so there's that risk to exposure as well, and and then possibly the, the risk of a bad outcome. So putting all that together, I said, it's important to participate. You get one shot on day zero, and then you get another shot, I think on day 28. You're randomized. There are two groups, 50-50, half people receive a placebo, half the people receive the actual experimental product. They also give you a little app to put on your phone and it's a COVID-19 symptom diary. So you get on there and every week you have to answer a one question survey that says, do you know that you have COVID or do you have any of the symptoms of COVID? They also continue to follow up with you. You have like seven follow-up visits. The whole trial goes for 24 months, as I was explained. And they keep a close eye on you and they follow up with you. And you continue to go to those appointments. A couple of the appointments, they'll retest you. They'll draw some blood. Most of the appointments, it's just, how are you doing? And just check in with you. The trial's going well. I don't want to talk a lot about which arm I was in. I know that the trial for me did not involve any kind of side effects. I'm glad to be participating and contributing in, the, in this uh, effort. I've also told a lot of my friends who are in some of the more underrepresented demographic groups who I believe are leaders in their communities that they should consider it. Uh, it's not for everybody. I understand that. But I also want to make sure that people all across society have a chance to maybe know somebody who did it or hear from somebody who feels comfortable enough so that if the vaccine ever makes it there, people will, will feel more comfortable to eventually get the product if, if it is efficacious and safe. So not so many weeks ago, you picked up the newspaper or you checked your phone or whatever it might have been, and you found out that the Pfizer vaccine is 90% effective. What was your response in that moment? It's just amazing news. It's excellent news. I mean, to think that humanity can, in less than a year, develop a vaccine, put it through trials, and have this kind of success with 95% efficacy and no serious side effects, if this all pans out correctly, meaning that we go through peer review, the FDA process, and it ends up being a truly viable product, then this is a landmark achievement for the scientific community, for humanity in general. Now, when Dr. Shaw says it's an overnight success, Will, talk a little bit about some of the basic science that has fed into this. The process hasn't changed very much. It just was accelerated administratively and financially. Some of these vaccine manufacturers participated in a a contract, which the federal government provided them money for research and development. 
that sped things up. Pfizer didn't participate in that, but they did have a contract that uh, sped things up in terms of manufacturing, where the federal government paid for billions of dollars worth of vaccine in advance, and it was manufactured during phase three. So uh, that's that's one of the things that has really sped things up. I was confident from the very outset that we would have several safe and effective vaccines. And the reason I was convinced of that is that the most talented researchers in the world are working on this. This is a once in a career opportunity to work on this and the resources are there to do the work. And so there's 11 candidate vaccines in trials in the U.S. for the same illness. The odds are with us. And what we learned over the last two weeks about how safe and effective they were, mostly they talked about safety in these press releases. That, you know, it needs to be confirmed. They need to release the data, the phase three trial data needs to be reviewed by the scientists at the FDA. CDC needs to take a look at it and make sure that it's called the ACIP. It's a group of folks that will get together and do an analysis of which doses seem to be the best and with which populations and so forth. But I'm encouraged and I'm uh, confident that there'll be some vaccine in arms by Christmas, I think. Last time we did this roundtable, we had the lightning round question, whether you would do emergency use authorization or wait for full approval. The entire panel unanimously said, wait for full approval. As I of the recording of this- mind. Okay. <laughs> All right. Ever since that show, I've been thinking about my answer. I'm inclined to go with EUA now. I think Pfizer is one company that's not among the group of companies that all promised that they would go for full approval before going forward. There were a group of companies all together wrote and said that they were going to do it properly, get all the data, and then apply for, for use. But Pfizer wasn't, I think, among them. I still like the idea of having all the data to look at. The Pfizer's 90% data, don't forget, was based on one week after the second dose response. That's what they're looking at. I mean, it's hard to say that after a week after a booster shot, you wouldn't have some response there. So there is some value to having it all in front of you, especially given the safety. And one thing that's really important to remember is if there's failure, if it doesn't work as well as it's promised, the hit from a public acceptance perspective that we would take is huge. What we really want is to convince everybody to get vaccinated. And if it doesn't work well, then we could lose on a public relations basis that could really hurt us in terms of achieving herd immunity. So that's why I still like the idea of full approval. Dr. Shaw, you weren't here for the last round table. Your thoughts on this? I would say that honestly, I probably would have gone for the emergency use, and I, and I don't, I don't know what you know what the context of your discussion was at that time. So it's easy for me to you know armchair it now. But but there's a risk benefit calculation that you have to do. So if you wait X number of months, you can calculate the number of people that will be dead. That is a non-zero number that you can calculate and say by waiting another three months, these are the number of people. Now I fully appreciate Joshua's argument about buy-in. Completely, totally get it. And it's spot on that you, you do have to have people buying in, given what we know about the discussions that happen in the political realm with regard to vaccines. I totally get that completely. And at the same time, I think we can have our cake and eat it too if we communicate this well and say, look, it's the best decision to make at the time. 
it may not be a perfect product. We may discover more about it. It went through a very rapid approval process and that's the best you can do. But if, if you know that that's the best you can do, and I don't think we're talking about making this mandatory, we're, we're talking about giving people the option to have it. And those that want to go get it can have the option to go get it. And that, that will save lives. The reason I changed my mind, uh, Josh, I totally get what you're saying. And that's <laughs> why I voted the way I did two weeks ago. But I started thinking just from an objective viewpoint, like who are the people that will be getting those emergency use authorization, EUA doses of vaccine? Mostly people like Dr. Shaw, uh, people who work in emergency department, nurses, people who have the ability to fully understand that they're taking EUA vaccine. I started thinking in my mind, rationalizing in a way, thinking, well, really it's just phase four and it's in a population for which there's full opportunity for full disclosure because they're in the field. By being EUA, emergency use authorization, it's not a free-for-all. You have to agree to continue to collect data during it. So to me, I changed my mind when I thought of it as really a phase four trial, which it is called phase four. And quite honestly, Josh, it's partly because of the report that your team put out a couple of days ago showing where the trajectory is going in Arizona and how the hospitals will likely be overwhelmed at some point between December 13th and, well, they didn't say likely. Mid to late December, we're seeing a hospital overload. So there I'm like, okay, I changed my mind. And then this morning, or maybe it was late last night, I'm not really sure, our third vaccine has shown up via AstraZeneca. Much different than the previous two that have been announced because it uses a different methodology. Also much different in that it can be refrigerated as opposed to kept at minus 94 Fahrenheit. Also much different than the other two because instead of costing 20 to $35 a dose, it's 3 to $4 per dose. We'll talk about the public health implications of having a broad swath of vaccines, particularly ones that have different logistical supply chains. Yeah, well, I think it's always good not to have all your eggs in one basket, whether it's a vaccine or no matter what it is. It's encouraging now that we've got at least three, and I'm sure more on the way. The first two vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna, are new technology, messenger RNA technology, which is it's actually very fascinating. We could do a whole show on it. The new AstraZeneca one that they talked about today, it's a little bit different. It's an adenovirus that's not pathogenic, and that's the vector that they use to get the antigen to people that they form an immune response for. But your point is really well taken that the Pfizer vaccine especially, which is the trial Dr. Shaw was in, has to be held at negative 94 degrees below zero. And then there's a process for thawing it out. You have to use it within a quick period of time. So that really lends itself to mass vaccination campaigns, which is good because quite honestly, the first doses are going to be going out to occupational groups like nurses, doctors, hospital, healthcare workers in nursing homes and assisted living, et cetera. And that lends itself to mass vaccination. When you get out to the general public, mass vaccination is more problematic because you don't have like an employee ID number. You can't get, you send an email to every single person and say, come Wednesday between 10 and noon for your vaccine kind of thing because your employer is asking you to do that. 
So when you get out to the general public, mass vaccination campaigns are a little harder to do. So it's nice to have vaccines like the AstraZeneca vaccine, which will lend itself much more to clinical settings like community health centers, doctor's offices, appointments, things like that. Whereas the Pfizer vaccine is more of mass vaccination. And the Moderna is kind of in between, I think. It's easier, I think, for the Moderna vaccine to be in a clinical setting. So we've got these three different vaccines. They all look promising and they could all be used in different ways under different circumstances, which is good. There's enough consumer awareness, I think, of these different vaccines that somebody might literally walk in to get a vaccination, find out they're getting one and ask for the other. Like, I don't want Pepsi. I want Coke. Well, yeah, yeah probably it'll happen. Might happen. And, yeah, and they all need booster shots. So whatever you get first, you need that needs to be your booster, too. You need to all keep right. the same product. No mix and match. But the booster, that's going to be a challenge because Dr. Shaw knows loss to follow-up is a thing they say in medicine where you have a patient and then you lose them and you don't know what happened. Right. And yeah. You don't want that to happen with these vaccines because pretty clear that the real benefit is after the second vaccine. It sounds like, well, especially with what AstraZeneca said today, that it was really that booster shot that put them over the line to get it to that 90% threshold. So can Arizona's vaccination system do its part to track a two-dose vaccination process? Well, the tools are there, but it takes a lot of planning and upfront work. And that's happening now. I mean, there are vaccinators that are volunteering to be in the program and they're buying cold storage and renting tents. And that is happening in the background, but it takes a lot of planning. We need the informatics or the databases to do the tracking. Some of that could be electronic medical records, EMRs. The clinics that have that kind of stuff in place could use that. Yeah, the state's immunization registry. Actually, Arizona had one of the very first immunization registries in the country. It's called ACES, a long acronym for what the system is. And it came out, interestingly, because Governor Symington's wife was big into vaccinations, and she worked hard with the legislature to get the funding and everything through to do that initial funding of the ACEs system. So we do have a mature vaccine tracking system that can be leveraged. And you heard Governor Ducey talk about that ACEs system. I don't think he used that acronym, but that is what he was talking about. One of his executive orders was focused on doing administratively what needs to be done to ACEs so that it could be the tracking tool. Everybody's pretty excited about the vaccines, but that comes against a very, very different backdrop right now, where the current U.S. wave of new cases is even outpacing all of Europe. Arizona Department of Health Services today tweeted out that five weeks ago, we were on a 6,100 cases per week average. Last week, 18,000 cases per week. We're in some serious, serious trouble when it comes to prevalence of COVID-19 in Arizona. Dr. Shaw, rather than that just being a percentage, what does it look like in real life? We're seeing more cases in the ER from my own personal experience. Absolutely. Again, it's it's very anecdotal data, right? Because I'm just one person working one shift in one ER somewhere. But you can feel it. I mean, you you can you know that you've got more people coming in with the typical symptoms and their CT scans and all that stuff. So absolutely, we we can feel the rise there in the caseload. 
where the rubber meets the road again is will the health system be able to take care of all the people that are sick enough and handle the surge? So yesterday, if you look on the AZDHS website and you look at ICU beds, which was the critical resource over the summer, you can see that we have about 10% of our beds free. And that 10% isn't always really 10%. It's a little less than that because of turnover issues and logistics. And that is licensed capacity on that website, not staffed capacity. Right. And we, we talked about this over the summer. A bed is not a bed until it's a staff bed. So you need to be able to then adjust to that. COVID patients are clearly on the rise in the ICU, and we've seen the general case load rise. We've seen the ICU cases rise. And number of people that are in the ICUs that are non-COVID is roughly kind of fixed at about 65% or so. So add the 25% COVID, now you're looking at 90% of beds full. Well, in the summer, a lot of what we did was we reduced the number of non-COVID people in those ICU beds using a variety of measures. We canceled a lot of elective surgeries. We, again, brought in staffing. We had mitigation measures to make sure that we could take care of all these people. And I think that that is the discussion we need to be having today with all of the hospital groups and saying to them, what what are you guys doing? You, you can see that the trends are not moving in our direction. We've seen this movie before. We, we did it over the summer and we may need to do it again. Right now, the rise is, I mean, it's just not as big as the rise was over the summer, but that means we need to start preparing and doing the right thing. Josh, your colleague, Tim Lant and their yep. team put out a pretty interesting report last week. Talk about what it says. Are we really seeing last summer all over again, or is it different this time? We are seeing, to some extent, a refrain from what happened last summer. There are a couple of things that are different. So probably the most notable difference, to my perspective, is that the rate of rise is not as fast as it was then. So the doubling time at the beginning of the summer was a doubling almost in a week. Now the doubling time is closer to two and a half weeks. But the thing you can't forget is that exponential is still exponential, and it is still exponential. You know, there are a couple of things that may differ now from then. First of all, at the beginning of last summer, the number of susceptible people was nearly everybody. I mean, it was like 98%. We now know from a serological study that Megan Jen, one of the faculty members at ASU, participated in together with the Maricopa County, shows that roughly 11% of people in Maricopa County, they did the study in Maricopa County, around 11% have been exposed and are serologically positive. In these epidemiological models, one of the boxes you fill is the susceptible population, and that has been reduced somewhat. So when this virus bounces around, one out of every 10 people roughly that it bounces into has already seen it, and they're not susceptible anymore. So that might slow from, from a one-week doubling time to a two-and-a-half-week doubling time. Another thing that the team is working on, Tim and, his, and, and Esma Gell and Mega Jen and, and Heather Ross and others, Anna Muldoon, they're looking at the possibility that there are actually two populations that we're dealing with. I may have alluded to this before, but you think about smoking. There's a group of people, they hear the data, they understand the risks of smoking, and they decide on their own, I'm not smoking. There's also a population out there that decides that they're going to do what they're going to do. But if you make it illegal for them to smoke indoors or you, you know, pass a policy that says they can't smoke indoors, they can't smoke in businesses, they'll abide by that. And so they'll 
they'll behave well in public. I think that you see something similar here. You see a group of people, they hear the data, they understand what COVID's about, and they're just going to follow all the mitigation factors. And there's a group of people out there that they will abide by it if the rule says they have to, but otherwise they're going to do what they're going to do. They're looking at the possibility that there are this sort of mixed model of populations. And how does the model that there's some people that are just going to do what they're going to do impact the rest of the population? So they're looking at that right now as a model as well. Now, the other thing that's different between last summer and today, when you talk about exponential doubling, it's off a completely different base than it was in the summertime. We are at a higher plateau to start. Yes. The modeling work that Tim Lant and his group did gave pretty specific projections on when we're going to run out of bed capacity in Arizona. Can you share those? They looked at a couple of things. The model that they use uses a factor called beta. And that, that factor kind of assesses both the likelihood of transmission and the number of people that are coming together to give the opportunity for transmission. And they looked at the current trajectory, kind of where they think we are right now. They looked at what would happen if 15% were to go up in transmission of the beta factor, or if there were a 15% drum. There were a couple pretty fascinating things to those numbers. So first of all, just to remind people, the current beta that we're on right now is very similar to what we were on back at the beginning of summer. So that number looks about the same. Back in the summer, when the governor and others started instituting policies that limited transmission, closing down certain businesses and whatnot, or at least asking them not to operate for a while, we were able to drop transmission from 0.23, which is where it is now, down to 0.14, so a 40% drop. So suggesting a 15% drop right now is not extreme. And when Tim and the team looked at that, if we were to drop it there, we could actually turn the numbers around just by a 15% drop. If it continues where it is right now, looking at Maricopa County, by the end of this month in three or four weeks, we could be looking at hospitalization limitations. It's not far away. We're a few weeks away from that because as we said earlier, exponential growth is exponential growth. And we're in exponential growth right now. There's nothing slowing it down at the moment. In a matter of weeks, we could be looking at filling our ICU beds and filling our hospital beds. And I would argue if you actually look at the numbers at the state website, we may be going a little faster than where Tim and his team initially proposed. They, their numbers were based on mid-November numbers. Looking at the current numbers, things look like they're accelerating a little bit faster. So we may be edging up towards the curve that they proposed, which was the plus 15% rate. And so we're not in a good place right now. Will, you've had a chance to see this report and this data. You also hear Josh talking about the different eventualities that were plotted into the model. Sound too conservative to you? Sound about right? I'm not in a position to question that. Yeah. <laughs> They're the Fair experts. Enough. And like I use their work and Dr. Joe Gerald down at U of A. Those are the people that I use to help inform my advocacy. I'm not qualified to question those guys. I, I'll tell you, I trust them and their track record is phenomenal. Then the follow-up question to that is, Josh specifically just talked right now about how changes in statewide policy could dramatically impact the growth rate of COVID in Arizona. The governor last week came out and said, I'm not going to do a statewide mask mandate, and I would just encourage people to behave appropriately. What's your response to that? Well, it's wholly inadequate. Second, it changed the trajectory. We're going to stay on this track. Let me go back for a second. When Josh referred to the pause, when the bars were told to close back 
after our exponential growth in the summer and the hospital crisis. And then when they were allowed to open again, they were told to sign an attestation that they would follow the mitigation measures that were required. And they were good ones. Like restaurants are supposed to act at 50% capacity and bars were supposed to behave just like restaurants and have only table service and also adhere to occupancy limits. Good. But it's only good if there's compliance with those mitigation measures. And there has been all along a very weak compliance system. It's totally complaint driven, except for in Pima County. I think they're doing a little bit of proactive stuff. But for the most part, it relies on people to call into some 800 number that the state health department has. And they sometimes do follow up investigations in person. Sometimes it's over the phone. But the fact of the matter is there's been very few enforcement measures. And any of you that are listening to this podcast can go out on a weekend and you tell me whether you think the bars, restaurants are operating within those mitigation measures. The answer is they're not. And so we don't have compliance. We don't have fidelity to the standards and haven't had for many weeks now. So had there been a better compliance and enforcement system in place for those businesses and to ensure that they're following the attestations that they made around mitigation, I think we'd be in a much different place. So that which brings us to the question, if we were to really ramp up compliance now, would it make a difference? And I think that it's too late. We should still ramp up compliance in enforcement. You need time for those things to work. People ask, well, how could you do that? Well, we got people all across the state. They're called sanitarians. They do the food safety inspections at all the restaurants in Arizona. They check the steam tables for heat and the walking coolers for cold. They could have been repurposed a long time ago to focus on mitigation measures and ensure that the bars and restaurants were following the mitigation, but they didn't do that. And there's some people that object to that. And I say, okay, well, then maybe the National Guard, which is working mostly at the food bank, they're doing good work stocking shelves and things like that, but they could be sent out and start spreading the word that the attestations they made were real and that their food establishment licenses are at risk if they don't follow them. So that would have worked, I think. Now, would it have gotten us out of jeopardy of a hospital crisis? I don't know, but at least it would have been something to get better compliance and reduce the chances of having a hospital crisis. But I think in the end, what is going to end up happening is that the governor's going to see that he made a mistake again and that when crisis standards of care or when the surge line is rapidly moving patients from hospital to hospital, he'll realize that we got to shut the bars again. I think by December, we'll be back where the bars are shut and the restaurants are doing takeout again. And then it will take a few weeks for that to take effect. In the meantime, hospitals will be jam-packed with patients for a few weeks. That's what I think. A couple of comments to add to that. Since we last talked, a very nice study was published, primarily looking at the data from the last surge. They looked in 10 major cities, and they compared cell phone location data anonymously to populations and to the frequency of cases. And they looked at what were called points of interest, places where people were taking their cell phones to, how long they were staying at those locations, and then compared that to how often you saw infections. It was not surprising data, but it was certainly affirmatory data to the kinds of locations that frequently associate with transmission. Indoor 
dining, presumably slash bars, you know, they didn't actually separate bars as a separate group, was probably the most common place where you would see transmission, often by a factor of 10. And then other places like religious meetings was a big one, you know, again, large groups of people, indoors, sharing air, fitness centers, hotels. These are the kinds of places, things that we've known for a long time, groups of people together, indoor sharing air. Those are the kinds of things that led to a lot of transmission. So there's now good evidence that that's an issue. The other point I would make here very quickly is that one of the nice things to come out of the modeling group's data is that a 15% reduction in their beta value, or if you will, a 15% reduction in this sort of transmission factor was enough to turn things around. It's not like we have to do everything. We have to do more than we're doing. And if you could get it down by 15%, it not only stopped going up, but it actually started turning in the right direction. So I'm hoping that that positive message can get out and just let folks know that we really need to turn things around. Dr. Shaw, I'm one of your colleagues, a surgeon here at Valleywise Health and also the president of the Arizona Medical Association, put out an op-ed this morning that said, take it from a doctor, listen to our plea. Now more than ever, we need you to wear a mask, physically distance, and wash your hands. This is Dr. Goldberg. Yes. I know him well. I'm a member of ARMA as well. He's the president of ARMA. Yeah, I support him and I I support what he's saying. He's putting the right message out there, trying to save people's lives and help us save people's lives as well as as a profession. Hopefully, it'll never happen in Arizona, but in some surging locations like New York City, like in Italy, the reason loss of life began to increase was due to the lack of resources in a given locality. Do you see that threat staring you in the face? This is the same concern we had over the summer. The critical resource here are the ICU beds, and we have to be able to get people into those beds where we can provide them with oxygen, a ventilator, and everything else, medications now. And so the challenge is here. Now is the time where we have to start making the preparations and working with our hospital groups to make sure that that doesn't happen. And on the same token, every one of us out here as Arizonans can be doing specific things to contribute to it not happening. Oh, certainly. I want to also add my understanding and the demographics have not changed significantly from the summer until now. The people who are getting the illness still happen to be the younger demographic. And we're not seeing a massive change in the numbers with that regard. So again, if your population of people who are testing positive skews a little younger, there's going to be fewer resources. I think the thing that I would worry about more is if suddenly we start seeing the demographics change and and seniors starting to get it in big numbers, that would really make a a big difference as far as consumption of resources. I agree. That's exactly what we're seeing is the big growth in cases is mostly that young adult followed by the middle-aged adults and then lagging behind substantially are the kids under 15 and then seniors. And, And the slope of the increase for seniors is not as steep as it is for that young adult demographic. Lightning round.
That's a tough question. I had predicted that any subsequent surges would not be as big as the first surge we had for a lot of the reasons that Joshua mentioned earlier with this modeling data. We are once again on the upslope. I don't have a crystal ball. I predicted one thing over the summer. I could very well be wrong. I just think regardless of who makes any kind of predictions, everybody's got to do all the right things so that doesn't happen. I think all of us understand that it's a, a pandemic is a pretty complex problem. The vaccine is a huge part of the answer. I don't think many people would disagree with that. But again, there are a lot of issues with making sure that we get a viable candidate properly out to everybody. And a lot of issues that go along with that, executing all that is still a challenge. So yes, ultimately a vaccine is a large part of the solution. And still a lot of other things have to be done as well, especially in the next month or so while we're waiting for that vaccine to show up. You're doing this on purpose. You're asking like, these true-false questions that uh, have not a black or white answer. Right? It's just a little more subtle than that. You know, on its face, I would say false. It, modeling and projections are better guesses than wild guesses. That's the point. It, you're, you're giving people some knowledge with accepting some probability that you might still be wrong, but that you have a higher probability of being right.
Thank you, Will. Thank you, Josh. And thank you, Dr. Shaw. 2020 has shown us how complex a pandemic can be. Hunches are clearly not the answer. Instead, data on everything related to COVID-19 continues to bring us clarity, whether it's data on vaccine safety and efficacy, on how and where the virus is transmitted, on how our near future might play out, or for that matter, on how we can help ourselves and our communities get through this latest surge together. As Josh said, just a 15% change in rate of transmission can turn our increasing case rates around. 15%. Please help us avoid hospital capacity issues and crisis standards of care. Now is truly the time to double down on healthy, low-risk choices. Remember that health and well-being is shaped by three factors that determine exposure to potential viral load. People, space, and time. More people equals more risk. Less space equals more risk. And longer time equals more risk. There's a big difference between that well-spaced walk in the park and a small indoor bar that's filled with people. Bars and restaurants have been shown to be more risky for COVID-19, as Josh said, by a factor of 10. The CDC is urging us to limit travel and to limit number of people at family gatherings. Do your best, Arizona. Wash up, mask up, maintain physical distancing to help manage the risks of people, space, and time. If you haven't already, get your flu shot. And remember that masking up earns you double health benefits, limiting transmission of COVID and the flu. Let's be in this together in order to get out of this together. Our roundtable returns in two weeks. In the meantime, our back catalog of episodes awaits your ears, especially episode 52 on all the options for health coverage, including Obamacare open enrollment that is available only through December 15. Or episode 50, which introduced you to Vitalist's statewide health data dashboard. There's a lot to listen to, including guests from across the state and national experts too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for this episode. The takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in your place of business, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please, share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released, or listen to The Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. Give us your feedback wherever you get your podcasts, or you can give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments, they are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.